Hey guys, this is Ishai Breslauer and welcome to the CRE Shark Eye Show where we discuss commercial real estate. On Mondays, we dive deep into an asset class and on Thursdays, we go into some inspirational stories for the weekend. Can't wait to start. Let's go. Hey guys, before we start, I just want to point out the six best secrets for commercial real estate. It's a free download. Go to the text side and you will find it. It has absolutely great information, completely free, how to become a landlord, how to determine the value of a property, or creative financing for commercial real estate. All of it is completely free. Go download it. Also, I want to point out my CRE crash course. It's a two-week must-have program with a must-have skills for commercial real estate, like investment strategies, the must-have financial terms, how a deal is done, Go take a look at it, go to the text side and click on the link. And now let's continue with our program. Hey guys, how are you? This is Ishai Breslauer, your host of the CRE Shark Eye Show. Today with us, we have a professional retail dude. Chris Ressa is with us. Many of you probably know him from either Clubhouse, from LinkedIn, from all across. Uh, we'll have the pleasure today in digging into a very fascinating personal story, as well as the market and what's going on with retail. And I can't wait to have this conversation. Chris, thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Pleasure. Pleasure. You know, before we even start digging into your story, which I can't wait to hear, um, give us the two-minute elevator pitch about what do you do today and what's your focus? I... I am the chief operating officer at DLC. I am professionally, I am a father of two, a four-year-old and a three-year-old. I have a incredible wife. And so I'm either doing real estate or spending time with my family. Uh, as the chief operating officer at DLC, we are an owner and operator. So I oversee all aspects of the organization that have to do with operating the property. So that's leasing, construction, property management, and marketing. Sounds awesome. I can't wait to dig into this whole thing. Can't wait. But tell me something. I know you didn't, uh, how do you say, the silver spoon was not given to you when you were a very little kid, let's put it that way, to say the least. And you have a very fascinating story. You want to share it with us a little bit, how you got into it? Or, you know, let's go all the way, through, you know, from the beginning. Yeah, so my Father, my, it was just me and my father when I was younger. My mother left when I was two. Wow. I haven't seen her since. Um, so spent uh, the first part of my life with just my father and I. He got remarried. Um, it was a lot of times just him and I. It was in the beginning. It was a one-bedroom apartment, and he lived on the in the living room, and I was in the bedroom. And... It was a lot of time um, focused. He was focused on making sure I had good grades. And I was in a lot of youth sports that turned into high school sports. And then I wrestled in college. Uh, those sports definitely helped shape uh, who I am today, for sure. Um, took a lot of lessons from those sports. And that's the early part of my life. Sounds unbelievable. And what got you eventually into real estate? 
coming from a blue collar family, I didn't want to um, do manual labor uh, when I was graduating college and I was applying to a lot of different industries. I ended up applying to Sherwin Williams, the paint stores company. And I got offered a job there in their corporate real estate department. And so that was my first job out of college. And I've been in commercial real estate ever since. Um, and, you know, I obviously fell in love with commercial real estate. And my first foray was uh, on the tenant side for a major corporation. It's amazing. And you've been through a lot. And in terms of your, I love the career path, I meaning you've been through a lot of very fascinating organizations and uh, gained a lot of experience over there. But let's, let's go back for the beginning. When you started up, what was the very, very first role that you took that gave you sort of the experience to go and the hunger to go and move forward? In real estate? Yes. I was a real estate rep at Sherman Williams. So I was out looking for new locations for them to open up new stores. I was renewing existing leases. I was out looking for office space for like their district offices and some light industrial space for some storage facilities and things like that. And that was my first role. Amazing. At a certain point, I saw that you worked even for the Akhenazi Corporation, which is a very a prestigious type of a company. Does, did that give you another boost in terms of your professionalism, the, the, you know, the process of learning to getting, getting into the retail Obviously, they have some uh, trophy assets over there. What, what did you learn over there? Yeah, so when I was at Sherm Williams, I was the tenant. And then I decided that I loved the commercial real estate business. And I wanted to work on the landlord side. And Ashkenazi was my first opportunity to work on the landlord side of the business. So I spent a year and a half as a tenant. And then I moved over to the landlord side and got to see the other side of the table. We're talking a long time ago. This is in 05 yeah, and 06. So, but um, that gave me uh, a lens into the other side. That was the, the biggest thing to think about. You got to see how a retailer or a tenant looks at real estate and then how a landlord uh, looks at real estate. Awesome. And today you are at DLC, right? Yep, since and 07. Since 07, that's a long time. Mm -hmm. That's a long time. And, and I look at your profile a little bit. It looks like you moved up the ranks in a very, yep. very, very good way, very nice way. Want to tell us a little bit about your career path, about the, you know, what you learned along the way and what got you to grow, the work ethic, everything about it. Yeah, so I grew up on the leasing side at DLC. It's a owner operator. They don't third party uh, anything. And so we don't, they didn't then, we don't today. We did everything internal. So our property management, construction, leasing was all in-house. And I grew up in the leasing ranks. So I was making deals at Sherman Williams. I was making deals at Ashkenazi. And then I grew up in the leasing ranks and I had the opportunity to lease things all over. And from a geographic perspective, I was building relationships with tenants, brokers, and, you know, learning different pieces about deal making. And then my career 
took a little shift, which was, you know, at some point, if you're in the leasing ranks and you're working in a corporate environment, you make a choice if you are going to continue to be deal making or you're going to, and maybe the deals get more complicated and maybe you work on different types of assets, trophy assets, or you get into the people management business. And so I was promoted and was leading a leasing team, which is very different than leasing space yourself. And that leadership and management experience I enjoyed. And that grew me up the ranks to continue to grow and build bigger, larger uh, teams. And to the point where I am today in overseeing, you know, a bunch of teams that's probably in any moment in time between 60, 70 people. That's, that's significant growth. And tell me something today, you're running a lot. How do you say the operation that you're running today is a lot bigger, is much larger. What type of, let's start digging into the real estate aspect. What type of assets you guys are going after? We're talking about retail, of course. Yeah, we buy value add retail assets. So we're looking at things with significant upside and we're looking at things that are large and are open air. So typically we're in the 20, $30 million and up open air. They have a good story. Um, there's some level of broken nicks, but they have the ability to be fixed up and redeveloped. Okay. So now we have to dig into this whole thing. It's beautiful, right? We have a value add. So what type of value add is your game or your favorite game or the focus? Obviously there are different types of value adds, obviously, but um, if you could tell us a little bit about, give us like a live examples. I mean, we like, lease up to major redevelopments. Um, so it depends on the opportunity, but I think it starts with that it's a, it's a property of size and it's open air. We're not in the business of um, buying malls, enclosed yeah. malls. And then I think the second piece of it is that there's, you know, some level of real, you know, the word value add gets thrown out so much, but there's right, it's true. some level of vacancy that you can reposition to legitimately add value to the asset. So, you know, you told story, you said that there's a story to the asset. And, you know, from my experience, uh, that's, that, that's my favorite part. You know, when it comes to a deal, and you're looking for something, you're looking for a real interesting opportunity. Every interesting opportunity has a story. So if you could tell the people who are listening, some, some of the people are very professional. Some of the people yeah, have, so have heard stories. By example, yeah. by example the, we bought a deal in Southern New Jersey, the court at Deptford. It was 35% occupied. When we bought it, it looked really in disarray and and we were um we knew there was tenant demand in the marketplace and even though the property was in disarray the existing tenancy even though it was only 35 percent occupied did really well because it was a strong market so the story was yes it's vacant not because the property's bad but because of 
many other reasons. It was in and out of receivership. It was going through a transition where some tenants moved around in the market and it hadn't been updated in a while. And so, but we knew there's with the right redevelopment plan and the right basis in the deal, if you were prepared to sink money into it, you could buy it and really add some value. And today it's, I think over 90% occupied. We bought that in 2015 and it's doing well. You know what? That's an amazing story. When you're going into, and I had such an experience, but I want to hear from you really. And uh, you've seen so many of those. When you're getting into a property that has a 35% occupancy, which is low, really low. Right. What gets you to actually say, I want it? So in this case, I think, I think like we mentioned, there's always a story as to why it was 35% occupied. We believed the story as to why it was low vacancy or high vacancy. And we knew there was tenant demand to actually fill the center up. Now you had to do things to, to get that demand. You had to you know, spend, do a multi-million dollar renovation on the facade, the parking lot, the landscaping, the roofs. So if you're prepared to do that, then you could execute on the demand. So, you know, I think it was a combination of the market, the reasons why it wasn't performing, and that there was actually demand if you were able to execute on a major redevelopment here. So that's a, that, that's a major key because in such a case, when you go around, you have to actually make sure that, the, you know, when you go in and you're going to actually acquire that kind of a property, you want to make sure that the market will respond, right? That they will sure. actually, things will come through for you. And it's very hard to know, but there are ways to research it. You want to share with us a little bit of what, what research you make in your case in order to- I, th I think one of the things, right, we're, we're a, an operator, so we have relationships with tenants and that's a competitive advantage. So- uh, when we're looking at an acquisition, we're going to the tenant base of the retail tenant world to see who might be interested before, you know, we potentially close on a deal. That's a beautiful aspect. And I want to ask you this. Now, that leads me to the next question. The difference between the locals and the nationals. Okay. Uh, when you go to that type of a, you know, when you want to go to your tenancy, Obviously, you are probably very involved. You've been to every ICSC, as long as, you know, pre-COVID, obviously. Um, who is your ideal tenant? You don't know, but you obviously see your center. You see what the requirements, you see what the market requires, and you say, okay, this is my type of tenant. Can you give us a little bit of analysis of, you know, between the nationals and the locals and how you differentiate and who you actually pick and choose? Yeah, I, don't, I don't think there's any... I think if there's, if the property only has like it's, it's, and we've run into this before where the only like really strong opportunity tenant is one tenant, then it's going to be tough. Then it's a huge, it's a huge risk. So I don't think there is just this ideal tenant for, there's no one size fits all. I think in today's world, 
some assets are assets that should be all nationals. Some should be a mix of national tenants and locals, and some should be majority local tenants. It depends on the location and the market, what the market is, the type of asset and what the, the consumer, the end consumer is demanding from that asset. You know what? Want to shift gears a little bit. We, we know what happened to the world. The world came and was, you know, the classic malls. Everybody loved those malls of the 80s, you know, that were built in a very certain way in the suburban areas where everybody loved to go to and walk through the Sears and the JCPenney's into the mall and this whole beautiful story. And then came sure. Amazon and the e-commerce revolution, which you know very well. Um, in today's world, obviously, um, how did the tenant mix change and what are the requirements? Meaning, if you put yourself in a second, meaning in the 80s, and you put yourself now, what are you looking for in terms of tenancy? And what is the difference? So when you go from a high level, I don't know that there's significant difference. You want strong operators who generate traffic, who you know can compel end consumers to come to the property and spend their dollars. I'm not sure that's any different than it was in the 80s. I think who it is might be different, but the type of tenant is the same. Um, you know, who they are and what type of uses they might be potentially are different today. Some of it's the same, right? We still have fashion retailers. We still have grocery stores. We still have beauty stores. We still have dry cleaners. We still have hair salons. These were all tenants that were around in the 80s. And we still need them. We still have them. We still need gyms. We still need them. Right. Yeah. Um, but certain things changed. We know that. We know certain type of fashion changed. Certain type of uh, those tenants that are putting the center at risk. How do you differentiate? When do you know when you're coming into a center and you want to like put a value add like sticker on it and you're saying uh, this, this is the deal I want and this tenant is a tenant I don't really want to have or I prefer not to have him renewing the lease and that tenant I do want, meaning, can you tell us a little bit about that type of a thought process that go through when you come into that type of an acquisition? Yeah, I think, I think that you want tenants that draw traffic, that are strong operations and have good, uh, good credit profiles whether they're local or national. Um, I think those fundamentals are there when, when sales start to decline and they're not traffic generators and their, their credit profile changes and the operations in the store start to change, you know, those are risks, those are red flags, right? I think the fundamentals of retail still hold true. You still need a strong balance sheet. You need a product and service at a value people want to pay. You need excellent leadership. You need operational excellence. You need to provide an experience that people love. That was the same in, you know, the 1940s, 30s. There's no difference in that today. 100%. I agree. When you, but when you want to track the, the traffic that comes into a mall by one, you know, one tenant and you want to compare it to the other tenant, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a difference between 
the way it used to be done in today or is pretty much the same? Yeah, I think today many retailers and landlords are using location analytics and geofencing. They're using cell phone data to find out how many people actually are coming to the site. I think that's pretty wide scale today to see um, how strong traffic is at a property. And we didn't have that technology, call it in the 80s. Right, which is awesome. And it actually developing and uh, it's going to be more and more, which is crazy. I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about what happened during COVID. And uh, you've been through COVID, obviously, just like everybody else as an executive. If you could tell us a little bit about that experience. Be more specific. What can I tell you that you don't already know? Uh, no, I, I, it's not me. I'm, I'm trying to uh, bring the information out. Tell me what I can tell you that you think might be interesting that the world doesn't already know about COVID. Okay. I want to ask. Wanna be redundant. I want to, don't worry about it. I want to ask about your specific experience when it came through tenant calling back, we're having trouble paying uh, the rent. And how did you guys deal with it? And who was mostly the type of tenant who did not want to pay the rent, the type of tenant that was okay paying the rent? And what did you see across the board? In terms of there's the differences between locations, the markets, et cetera. Yeah, we, we came up with an, a, a plan in March to uh, help the small business that was kind of a one-size-fits-all if they wanted to be in that. And we were able to work on a deferral system with uh, our small businesses if they wanted to take us up on that. And then on the national tenants, it was a bespoke negotiation with every national tenant. Um, and it, there was certainly a lot of horse trading on lease terms, you know, monetary for non-monetary uh, exchanges. Um, but it was a bespoke negotiation that, you know, lasted the better balance of 2020 and a couple that have lingered into 2021. And yeah, it was a long grind to get through you know, thousands of tenants. And how was it dealing with the, fi- with the financiers, with the banks? Uh, you know, that was um, a challenge. We, 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 but in some respects, in some respects, it wasn't. You know, they, we were able, where we needed to, work with our lenders and where we didn't, we didn't. Right. And uh, what happened after? Meaning, obviously, COVID is over. <laughs> Pretty much still there. We know vaccine, you know, everybody's is still uh, debating with the vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the lockdowns, I hope, are behind us. I really hope so. And, uh, and we're moving forward. Where are we going today with this? And where and, and how do you think it affected the future? Yeah, I think that there, 2020 was definitely... Everybody, and you can define portfolio if you're a retailer, your fleet of stores, if you're a landlord, all the properties you own, everyone trying to fortify and solidify their existing portfolio. And toward the end of summer, you started to see 
people feel that there was a light at the end of the tunnel and they started to put the pedal to the metal in growth. And I think where we are today is given the pent up demand from the consumer, the extra money the consumer has in the pocket, the retail demand and market share left on the table from some retail closures, the demand for retail space uh, in particular at open air properties is as strong as it's ever been. And there are a significant amount of retail tenants looking to open up stores, uh, seize the demand that's out there. And um, it's an exciting time. The recovery happened faster from the retail recovery happened faster than most could have imagined in March of 2020. And people are making long-term bets on the future of retail now that I think is contrarian to what people probably thought pre-pandemic. Right. And is it different, you think? People are talking about mix, a mix of, I would say, having an e-commerce solution within the retail centers. Uh, how do you call it? Delivery centers that are within the retail centers or all kind of stuff like that, which is opposed to obviously what you used to have in the past. Are you guys involved in that too? What, what is your approach about this? Distribution yeah, so, centers, call it whatever you want. Yeah. So the, the goal of people who sell products today in today's environment is to get goods in the hands of consumers as quickly as possible. So in theory, one would say that how do I get locations as close to the consumer as possible so that I can get it to them as quick as possible. And the real estate that's closest to the consumer today is retail real estate. And so that makes the real estate pretty valuable. What goes in the real estate, whether it's distribution or stores or service, is still being worked out today However, we're seeing that there's a continued growth of traditional retail. There's a little bit of distribution, but some are, you know, you look at Target, who's fulfilling almost 95%, if not more, of their orders online from their existing stores. So I think that the punchline is what will the shopping center look like? 20 years from now, I think anyone who tells you they know would be guessing, but what I think is certain, unless you move the housing stock in America, which seems like a daunting task, retail real estate is the closest real estate to the consumer, which puts it in a really strong position to, um, to you know, thrive in the coming years. You know what, I agree. And I also, meaning I think we got the best school uh, in the past few years, everybody was saying retail is dead, really, right? Everybody was talking about retail is dead. And all of a sudden we saw how much people like to get out of the house, especially after COVID. You know, it was like, that was, uh, uh, that was really amazing. How people wanted to get out and to get to the store and to go inside and to actually, you know, have that shopping experience. So uh, I 100% agree with that. Having said all that, we have New York City. And the retail in New York City 
is not back entirely or even close to it. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Because you're a New Yorker as well. You dealt with New York. You know New York. Tell us a little bit about that market. Yeah, I mean, don't own real estate in New York today. I think I'd go back. The first thing I'd say is on the e-commerce front is I believe that what will shake out over the next, I don't know if it's five, 10 years, 15 years, that the most affordable way for retailers to get products in consumers' hands and still make a profit, so make it affordable to the end consumer while still profiting, is through a physical store. So the myth is that e-commerce eliminates this rent cost and therefore is a better mousetrap for retailers or any business to deliver products to the end consumer. All we've seen is the cost of doing that go through the roof, whether that's shipping, whether that's customer acquisition cost. If you look at some companies' customer acquisition cost, their customer acquisition cost alone is more than the marketing and real estate cost of some other traditional retailers. And so I, I believe that will play out at some point in time. And what does that mean? That means the answer is both. We need an omni-channel presence and um, that's what you're seeing. And that's why there's this resurgence of store growth. I think as it relates to New York City, I think that I've, you know, I'm from the New York metro area, don't own real estate in New York, but I think that as the, there's no place like New York and while it's going to change, right, you're going to see a strong retail presence over the course of time to uh, in New York. How long? I don't know, but it is a, it has always been a great place for retail. It's a shopping Mecca. And I don't think that's changing um, over the long term. How that's done over the short term, maybe. But if you just think about it, right? It's, it's, it's not a demand issue. It's an economics issue. So if I told you that all rent in New York City was cut in half tomorrow, what do you think would happen to the vacancy in New York? It would be interesting to say the least. I think you'd have no, I think you'd have very little vacancy. Yeah, exactly. You'd have very little vacancy. And so, but, nobody's, got, but nobody's going down. Obviously. You don't have a demand issue. You have potentially in some spots, bid ask issue. And so as either what will happen is either the bid ask will change, which we saw it happen a little bit in COVID, or you'll have this slow grind of sales coming back which makes it compelling to pay the price. And so um, to me, that, that, that comment, when you think about New York is just a, it's a, it's a, now, obviously that was an extreme example. That's not happening and nor should it happen. But the punchline being is there's a, you have a, you have a, you know, economics question that people are having. And some people, and even at the economics of today, 
there are still retailers growing in New York, and I don't think that's changing. Tell me something, shifting gears towards uh, finishing, uh, what are you, do you have any tips for people, investors particularly, who want to go into retail, have the passion for retail, want to get into that? Anything they want to tell people like that? Any Build tips? Build a great team. Build a great team. And what would be the type of team that they should bring? They should, uh, they should I mean, build. It's going to be different for everyone. I, 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 I keep it broad because I think that one of the biggest myths is real estate is location, location, location. I think it's actually people, 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 and the people behind the location that make real estate work. And um, obviously location matters. That's not what I mean by that. But I think the people behind the location matter a lot more than people give it credit for. So build a great team. Build a great team. You want to tell people how to find you guys? Uh, meaning, obviously, you guys are seeing us. Look at the links below above. You will find Chris and you'll find DLC. Uh, so go to our website, www.dlcmgmt.com. And um, that's where you can find us. You can go on, find us on any social media platform and go from there. All right. And I can tell you guys, you can also contact Chris through LinkedIn and, uh, and check that out. And obviously, yeah. and listen to him also on Clubhouse, which is fascinating. I did. And he has a lot to say about this market and uh, to learn a lot from him. So uh, you guys, I'll see you in the next show. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks so much. Sure. My pleasure. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in this CRE Shark Eye show. I hope you enjoyed it and go subscribe, download, do whatever you guys need to do. And I'll see you in the next episode. Take care of yourselves.